was the late 30s and early 40s, and a man of great influence and power emerged on the scene. He was revered by those who were close to him and feared by those who opposed him. He was brought up in a family that held very tightly to their lineage, culture, and belief that they were the supreme race. There was a code that they followed and protected, a code of conduct, behavior, belief, and discipline. If anyone were to go against that code, they were considered defiled. If anyone who would oppose this doctrine, it was worthy of death. He considered himself a protector and purifier of this code. Early on, he became personally responsible for the death of many who opposed him. In his mind, he knew he was right and was doing the world a favor. He considered he was the pure one, the righteous one. He considered that he was the answer to his generation. His standards were strict. His words determined who lived and who died. His name was feared, and his name was Saul. I recognize that in the telling of this story, it sounds very much like I was talking about Hitler. But here's the hard reality of some of our Bible stories with real people that lived in a real time. Saul would become Paul and he would become one of the most famous Bible characters of all times. But the reality is for most of his life, he looked a lot more like Hitler than he did like Jesus. I want us to look at the story of Saul this morning. And I want us to to look at the story of how God had changed him. How God chose not to leave him behind. Because Saul was not a likely candidate for salvation. In fact, he was hated and feared by so many. But to know that this morning, as we talk about this process of, of God having a heart to leave no one behind, and how he wants to use you, and he wants to use me to be a part of this process. In fact, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is in the New Testament, which means it's the right-hand section of your Bible. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts, the fifth one in. And in Acts chapter 8, we are picking up on a story that Pastor Matt um, left off on two weeks ago as he was talking about the first martyr of the church whose name was Stephen. And in Acts chapter 8, look at verse 1, if you will, with me. It says, And Saul was there giving approval to his death, Stephen's death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all the, except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Now look at this verse. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. He went from house to house and he dragged off men and women and put them to prison. Again, this looks a whole lot more like Hitler than it did like Jesus. See, Saul was a Pharisee. 
He was a, a, a Pharisee and he was a son of a Pharisee. And what that meant was he grew up in a culture as a, as a Jewish boy. He was established and raised in the standard that, that you need to take the law of God, the Old Testament... And look at it very strictly. And so there was the written Old Testament and there was also this oral tradition that people would pass on basically a commentary of what they thought of the Old Testament. And if you were a young man like Saul, it meant that you would have had the entire Old Testament memorized. It would also mean that you would have the entire oral tradition memorized. Because your role within your society as a Pharisee to the Jews was that you need to make sure that the standard is kept for everybody. And, you, and, and for Saul, he was actually taught under one of the strictest of all the Pharisees, someone that was known to deal very harshly every single time that anyone would get out of line or want to do something that was contrary to what, um, what the law had said. And so even if this meant that you were now persecuting people, that is exactly what you did. And so, catch the, the, the great irony here. Saul actually thought he was doing the will of God. He thought that, that when this new movement started up called Christianity, and there were all these Jews that were following Jesus and the story of him being um, killed and then resurrected and and thinking that it was a, a great disease that was working its way into Judaism, for Saul, he thought he was the purifier. He thought he was the answer. He thought he was the one that could, could come and eradicate this movement called Christianity. And so this was his heart. This was his motivation. He actually thought he was doing what was right. But this is where we pick up the story because we're going to fast forward to chapter 9. And in this story and throughout this chapter, it becomes amazing. There's, a, there's an amazing story and an introduction of characters here. And let's walk through it together this morning. Look at verse 1, if you will, with me, if you've got your Bible. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's another word for Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, we need to get this right. He's going to the high priest and he's asking for permission to have like a death warrant. I, I'm sorry, but I can't help thinking, Saul went to the high priest seeking like double O status. He wants to be James Bond, which he has a license to what? To kill. He, he wants permission. He wants it all to be legal and upfront and cool with the high priest, but he wants to be a double O. He wants to be someone that has the right to, to say whether someone lives or someone dies. Well, look at verse 3. It says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Saul, at least he's catching on here, he goes, who are you, Lord? A big question mark. And then this is, these next seven words are words you don't ever, ever, ever want to hear Jesus speak to you. Here it is. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What does that feel like to have creator of the universe... Show up to you, bright lights, there's a vision, you're falling off of a horse, this is such a big deal. And you hear a voice, Saul, this is Jesus, now that we've introduced ourselves, question for you, why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus said, now get up, 
and go into the city, and I will show you what you must do. Well, look at verse 7. It says, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. Well, that's an obvious dumb moment. Like you're going to talk back to Jesus anyway. They're like guilty just by association. So they heard, they heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. I mean, the dude's flipped out. I mean, you think that your whole life you're doing exactly what God wants you to do. Then God himself shows up to you and says, what are you doing to me and my people? Obviously, there's a bit of a paradigm shift going on with Saul today. There's a bit of rethinking, a retooling of, I mean, seriously, have you ever thought that you were absolutely right, then you found out from your wife that you were absolutely wrong? I mean, it's a real wake-up call. I have those moments daily. But this is for Saul. And so, I mean, obviously something's going on weird because he can't see. I don't know if it's because of the bright light or just because God said, you can't see. I mean, but he can't see, so he's, he's having his, his macho friends, that his kill buddies, walk him by the hand. And there's a macho thing to do. Just hold my hand all the way. I'm scared. And so he goes finally to Damascus, and he's hanging out for three days because that's exactly what God wants him to do. But then we've got the introduction of a new character here in 10. In verse 10 it says, And in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias. Now, this is the good kind of call. This is like, you're glad you're not Saul kind of call. This is where you're going to be excited the conversation. Now think about this. Now, in, and a lot of times in the scriptures, we see a differentiation of God showing up in a dream and God showing up in a vision. And the best I can put together is a vision is like we're fully awake. We have full comprehension of what's going on around us, but it's there. It's really there. And it says God showed up in a vision, speaking to Ananias. Now, seriously, how cool would this be? Honestly, straw poll. Have you ever wanted to have a vision with Jesus? Four of you? What do you think we do here? It's all about Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. But so we've got, we've got the story going on, and, and God is speaking to Ananias, and he says, Ananias, who's very excited about this, I can only imagine... Um, because he knows that, that God's about to ask him something. Now seriously, if you're having a vision with God and he calls out your name and he's like, I want you to be a part of something. Can you do something for me? Which one of us wouldn't say, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I'm, anything you want, Jesus. And this is exactly what he says. He says, yes, Lord, I'm right here. What, anything you want, I'll do for you. And verse 11, and the Lord told him, he said, go to the house of Judas. Now, i got to imagine here, you got to think, if you're Ananias, you're like, I do... God, I'm so into this. Anything you want, just, just tell me what to do. And in my mind, this is how I play this out when I read the Scriptures. This may not be how you play it out when you read the Scriptures because you're not as weird as me. But when, when I read the Scriptures, this is how it goes for me. You've got the voice of God. You've got Ananias, who's just a real person like you and I. You've got God saying, Ananias, yes, Lord. What you want, Lord? Um, I need you to go to the house of Judas. Ju- Judas, let me get a pen. Ju- Judas, house of, house of Judas. God says, it's on Straight Street. Straight Street. Straight Street. Straight Street. Might have to Google that one. <laughs> and ask for a man named, or a man from Tarsus. 
Tarsus, man from Tarsus. God, what, what's his name? It would help if I knew his name. His name is Saul, and he's praying right now. What? I've shown him a vision of you, Ananias, that you're coming for him, and you're going to pray for him, and he's going to receive sight. Are you kidding me? Let me get this right. Now, it sounds like I'm not like doing the verses here, but I'm totally doing the verses here. Because the next thing that Ananias says, he says, Lord, I've heard of this Saul. I've heard of the reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints, including me, who live in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name, Lord. Are you catching any of this? In other words, Lord, I think he's got double O status. License to kill mean anything to you? And it's, it amazes me as, as there's this interaction with God because, again, we've, we've got this thought of what we would be like if, if God showed up in a vision to us and was talking to us and was asking us to do something. I would think we'd want to say, anything you want, Lord, we'd have the Isaiah, here am I, send me. But here we've got God talking to Ananias. Ananias is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't think you know what you're asking for, God. Because I don't think you really, I think you got the names wrong. Because the Saul that you're talking about from Tarsus, he's the one that just took one of our friends and put him to death. He's the one that was also responsible for killing of your son. Does any of this ring a bell, God? And you want me, this big old nobody, to go to him and to help him? Is that what you want? Now, as we take a pause on the story... There's, there's obviously something that happens between this verse and the next one. There's, there's a difference between um, the judgment that Ananias was a part of to the obedience that he was about to step into. I mean, quite literally, he had a come-to-Jesus meeting. But it was really something about this. Is The question is, why do you think Ananias responded this way to God? Why do you think he wanted to correct God and say, God, I think you've actually got the wrong person? And I think, quite frankly... Um, has thought that some people were beyond reach and in some ways they deserve to never have the opportunity of salvation. Have you ever thought that someone was too far gone? Have you ever thought or maybe personally you just wrote somebody off? They were just too bad. I mean, it's the kind of thing of... I. I remember a couple of years ago, I went out to, to Los Angeles um, for a, a pastor's training. I was there for a week with Jack Hayford. Some of you may know the name. Um, not all that important, but a very revered person in the Christian leadership community. And I'm listening to him speak to about 40 pastors who were there that week. And, and he's, he's talking about the love of God. And we're all tracking with him. And we're, we're scrambling to take as many notes as we can. And he, he talks about how much love we actually have for people. And, of course, we're all pastors in the room. And, and we all know how much we love people and how great we are and the models of love that we are. And how good. It's like, Jack, come on to something new. This is old news here. And then Jack Haverty poses the question. He says, let's imagine, let's fast forward in time that we're all in heaven. And if you saw someone in heaven that every indication you ever saw of them on earth... They either had the wrong belief system or the wrong lifestyle. He said, if you saw that person in heaven, would you be offended? 
would you be offended? And I remember dropping my pen on the table as he was speaking, thinking to myself, imagining the faces of people I've written off, thinking to myself, they don't deserve heaven. And I can prove it theologically. They just, they, there's no way they're ever going to come to Jesus. And in fact, if I'm real honest with myself, I don't think I wanted them to come to Jesus. Because if they made it to heaven with me, then what that really meant was I, I was no better than they were. And I think sometimes if we're real honest with ourselves, we come to the realization that we sometimes think we're just better, more deserving, more deserving of the grace that God has freely given out. And I'm, I think, folks, is maybe, maybe this is something we do and we live out. Maybe we write people off like Ananias wrote off Saul. I don't know about you, but maybe, maybe that's something we do. But I want to get back to the story here. In verse 15, the Lord is now speaking again to Ananias. He says, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, at, in, as we go into verse 17, we start to see that there is this amazing transition that goes on in the Apostle Paul's life. We've got Ananias. He's like, okay, God, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. You see hope in this guy. You see potential in this guy. You've got a plan for this guy, even though every other indicator about this guy is that he's evil, he's good for nothing, and we should have nothing to do with him. But look at verse 7, in 17, it says, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 18, it says, And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again, and got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the guy who raised havoc in Jerusalem? Among those who call on Christ's name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So get this. Ananias goes to this house that Saul is staying at. And I, I've got to think that Ananias, my picture, he's standing at the door thinking, am I really doing this? Am I really going into this house? Again, go back in the story. You encountered Jesus. He gave you a vision. Change the names because it still works for the story. You're at Hitler's house. And you're knocking on the door? What's that like? Are you thinking to yourself, this might be my opportunity to do something big for Jesus. Not in saving this dude, but in taking him out. He's blind, he can't see me anyway. <laughs> but he goes in. And he's obedient to God. And he walks over and he lays hands on Saul. 
And the Bible says immediately, like scales. Or it was like they fell from his eyes. Now, if, if you're a student of the Bible, you might catch on very quickly that there are two meanings going on here. One is, there I believe that there were literal kind of scales that fell from his eyes that he regained his sight. But the other is an amazing metaphor here that maybe for the first time in Saul's life, he saw with his own eyes as he would see. He came into the light. And it says also that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, at that moment, through Ananias, Saul was filled with such a power uh, of God that God was equipping him to do what? To write scripture, to plant churches all over the known world, to be a, a, one of the greatest apostles that, that we would ever see. It was at that moment that life change actually happened, but it happened because there was an obedient person named Ananias. You know, I start to think of this analogy, and that is um, when we take all of the scripture and we narrow it down into what what really is our role in life as Christians, as followers of Jesus? What is our role? I'm going to give you one of the most amazing theological truths you've ever heard in all your life. You might want to take notes. Ready for this? Your, your role in life is to be a, wait for it, garden hose. All oh, that's good stuff. I just saved, I saved a lot of you money on on Bible school just giving you that truth. That's like, that's garden hose. That's good stuff. I mean, I don't even care which one you are. You can be the green one, the chic black one. All you girls, you can even be that white one with the green stripe because it looks pretty. But our role in life, your role, my role, is to be a garden hose. Let me bring you along with me a little bit. There's not much glory in a garden hose. There's not much fame in a garden hose. But you know what the job of a garden hose is? One end, to be tapped into a spigot, tapped into a source, and the other end is to do what? Go to the dry places. So I think our life, in its simplest form, I just think we're a garden hose. One end tapped into God, and the other end just willing to go to the dry places. Because in this story, there's a lot of you that you've heard, certainly heard of Saul, who would be, his name would be changed to Paul the Apostle. But a lot of you don't have a clue who Ananias is. But Ananias is one of the greatest garden hoses of all times. Tapped into the source and willing to go to the dry places. You know, God did a great thing to Saul that day. Changed his life for eternity. I mean, the dude who, who came in breathing persecutes and threats and death threats walked out a very large smokestack out the top. In fact, we were very deliberate in the opening video to include a scene that was much like the building that I saw. There were furnaces in the basement of that building that would run all the time. And the hard truth is, and I'm not going to go into details, it's not the time or place, but every morning in that town below of Weimar, it would be covered with a half an inch of ash. At the end of the war, it was General Patton that finally liberated the camp. He came in blazing with tanks and his army of wonderful American soldiers. 
And they stepped into a scene that no one had ever prepared for. No one had ever seen this before. Even the terminology concentration camp hadn't existed before. They were overwhelmed by what they saw, what they encountered. And General Patton stood there in the center of this camp and started to question, why did the people of Weimar, the the people at the, the town, the bottom of the hill, why didn't they do anything? And he became angry. And the story goes that General Patton went down to the town and basically gathered the town together and began to question them. And he said, why did you let this happen? Why could you be so close and let this happen? Why? And the response was, we, we didn't know what was going on up there. We were told that they were just burning documents. And it breaks my heart even in looking at world history, to know that there are people that can be so close to something, to hurting people. And at some point, in some level of their mind and consciousness, they write them off. And my prayer is that as Christians, we don't do the same thing. We tend to forget how our life used to be before we had our Damascus road experience like Saul did. We tend to forget how we used to live our life, how we used to party and how we used to speak and how we used to interact with people and how we would abuse them and hurt them. And we thought that we were the worst candidate ever for Jesus to love us, but yet we found out He did. But yet sometimes we now have turned the blind eye. We just don't see those people anymore. But I want you to imagine with me. I I want you to imagine with me a group of people that determined that no one should be left behind. No one should be written off, no matter how different or bad or hurtful they were. I think that this really is our true mission. I think that this is our cause, that this is really what Jesus wants us to do. He wants you and me to enlist into something, to this greater cause that we can bring liberation to every forgotten and written off people there is. And so what we're going to do this morning, because we want this moment to last in your life, is that when you leave here today, you're going to be given a dog tag that says no one left behind. Because we want you to remember. We want you to put it in a prominent place. We want you to, to remember the neighbor that just you were so irritating that you just wanted to write off. That boss that was so uh, unnerving you wanted to write off. That family member you haven't spoken to in years. We want those dog tags to mean something. Because as part of the Christian faith, we believe that God is assembling a group of people. A group of people that will go and to reach every single person just as God has reached us. So let us search out those that we have written off. So may you today initiate a conversation with that difficult neighbor, that boss, that family member. May you take the first step and the second step and the third step because people matter, every single one of them. And just as God has a great plan for your life, God has a great plan for theirs too. 
I'm going to invite you to stand this morning and we're going to close in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your grace as we enter this great quest to search after those who have been forgotten, those who have been neglected, and those who have been written off. Please open our eyes like you did for Saul so that we can see those in need. Give us the courage to always be the first to reach out to them and give us the strength to never, ever give up, no matter how much resistance or disappointment we face. Please, Lord, help us to leave no one behind. This we humbly ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Let's go with God.